0: Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. We're going to begin reading at the end of that chapter and then uh, a few verses in chapter 12. Now it was mentioned earlier that uh, this is Reformation Sunday. Sunday. So, why do we call it that? Well, the reason uh, this is Reformation Sunday is that on October 31st, 1517, uh, which uh, was All Saints' Day, Martin Luther, a Catholic monk at the time, uh, nailed 95 statements on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, the reason he did that, that might sound like a strange thing to do, but uh, that was the way that you could start a public debate on uh, matters of importance. So you would uh, nail up a, a statement or two or three or however many, in his case it was 95, and uh, sometime read those. Um, but, uh, and then others would debate back and forth. Um, he had no idea the profound effect that that would have, not only on the church that he served at the time, the Catholic Church, but upon all Christendom and upon the world and the impact continues on. Uh, what were the statements about? Well, basically, he was uh, making statements, uh, uh, and, and by the way, most would see that as kind of the official start of the Protestant Reformation. There were many things, there were other pre-reformers and there was lots of things going on uh, concurrently with uh, the things that he was doing and teaching about, but most would see that as kind of the the mark of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which was based on justification by faith alone and the authority of the word of God And if you're wondering, what do you mean justification by faith alone? The gospel. He was calling the church back to the gospel and to the authority, not of the church, but of the word of God. Now, I've taught on that many times here. And so today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. If you're visiting with us we are in a, a series in, in 1 John. We'll be back to that in uh, uh, next week. But uh, today, um, I, I want us to consider the life of another one of the reformers. And uh, it, just by way of context, we are still going to read the Bible, okay? Um, by way of context, the the question might come, well, why even consider those who have gone before us? Why look back at these who have gone before us? And is that worthy really even of our our study? Well, in Hebrews, we are encouraged to do that with those from the scripture. So let's read together And let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Beginning with verse 32 of Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth and all these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since god had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight Lord, thank you for your church, for those who have gone before us. And today, Lord, as we look at your word and as we consider another one who has gone before us, will you bring us comfort not from history but from your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. John Calvin was born in 1509 in northern France. He died 55 years later. And so he was only eight years old when the 95 Theses were hitting the printing presses. And so some describe Calvin as a second generation reformer. That would be... I think an accurate, uh, description of him. And there were many second and third and and fourth generation reformers. He was, he was highly educated when persecution came. He fled France to Switzerland at age 26. He wrote the first edition of the institutes of the Christian religion that is, uh, Uh, one of some 58 volumes he wrote in his short life. Kent Hughes, in his book, Disciplines of the the Godly Man, asked 27 uh, Christian leaders about books that influenced them the most. Tied for first, in terms of being mentioned as most influential, tied for first, was Calvin's Institutes. How could one man have such influence through the ages? And yet, how could one man be so controversial in his day and through the centuries? His detractors called him the great black phantom because, like other scholars, he wore all all black. That was not A compliment to be called that. His supporters said God marked him with a character of singular majesty. Now I went to uh, college at Missouri Baptist College a long time ago. It is now Missouri Baptist University, but I graduated from a college, I guess. I learned very quickly uh, when I was there not to call myself a Calvinist. Uh, Most agreed with most of the doctrines. When we would just talk about doctrine and talk about the Bible, we agreed on most things. But if you said you were a Calvinist, For many there, there was automatically a wall put up. And maybe some of you had this in your background. Because for a lot of them, they were told by their preachers in the church they grew up in, they were told Calvinism is bad. And Calvin was not good. Now, they didn't know why. But they knew, I don't believe that. So I quit calling myself a Calvinist and just fellowshipped with them. By the way, in the Southern Baptist circles, there are groups like the, the Founders Movement that are going back to their Baptist roots, their earliest confessions of faith that they had, which were... Calvinistic. That's where, for instance, you have leaders like Charles Spurgeon, who was a five-point Calvinist. I think that it's very likely that Calvin would not have wanted people to call themselves Calvinists. In fact, as we'll see later, when he died he actually requested and they granted that he be buried even without a grave marker. He didn't want it to be about him. And so I I rarely label myself that way, but for our purposes today, I think Calvin would have said, no, let's not talk about Calvinism. Let's talk about biblical theology because he was convinced that's, Exactly where his theology came from. I am as well. Too often, Calvin is judged by his followers. They're too strict. Bunch of Calvinists, they're too extreme. But even when Jesus is judged just by his followers, he's not judged very accurately, is he? John Calvin said, Let our chief goal, O God, be your glory and to enjoy you forever. And that that was Calvin's highest desire, the glory of God. He also said the glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. That's where we see the glory of God. So, I want to tell you about some of the tenets of calvin 's theology and teachings i 'm not going to give you five points i 'm going to give you four. And that actually is the hardest, was the hardest part about putting this message together because how do you boil down you know someone who wrote so much and uh, so thoroughly boil it down to, to four things and so what i 've done is i 've chosen fourth, four of the doctrines that he focused on, that he taught, that are really in some ways underpinning of other things that he said, but also ones that are such an encouragement to me and a comfort to me, and I trust it will be for you all as well. So, number one, Calvinism's foundation is the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.16, and I, I've just chosen... Uh, verses that, uh, of course, he used, but uh, just to illustrate, all scripture, it says, is breathed out by God, in other words, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So now, here's what Calvin said. What devilish madness is it, to pretend that the use of Scripture, which leads the children of God even to the final goal, is fleeting or temporal. Here's what he was saying is that, you know, to, uh, for those that would say, well, we don't need the Bible or we don't, we don't need the Word, he, he called it uh, devilish madness. He didn't pull his punches when it came to the Word of God. He always emphasized, that's where we begin. So what use is the scripture? Well, it's it's useful to know God. If we are to know God, we have to have the word of God. Calvin said, the knowledge of God, which is set before us in the scriptures, is designed for the same purpose as that which shines in creation. In other words, that we may thereby learn to worship him with perfect integrity of heart and unfeigned obedience and also to depend entirely on his goodness. So we can know about God from creation, uh, from uh, nature. But Calvin put it this way, the world was no doubt made that it might be a theater of your divine glory. I love that. We we go out and we see that, and it's a a theater that informs us that there is a God, which we see in in Romans 1, to where in Romans 1 it says that, that we're left without excuse. If all we have is natural revelation, the world around us We can know enough about there being a God that we are without excuse before him. But if we are to know God specifically, if we're to have a relationship with him, the Bible is absolutely necessary. And that's why it's foundational. The word of God is also essential for discernment. Opinions and decisions should be measured against the word of God. If we teach, it should be from God's word. That's why our growth classes, why what comes from this pulpit is from the word of God. That is the only authority that any of us have is the truth of the word of God. If we argue over doctrine, it should be with God's word in hand. A second point that Calvin taught was an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God in everything. In everything. That he is all powerful. He's sovereign in everything. Isaiah 45 verse 6. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Christ is the Lord and King of the universe. Calvin said, the the will of God is the supreme and first cause of all things because nothing happens but by his command or permission. Another one who was highly influenced by Calvin, Abraham Kuyper, a Calvinist, put it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You get it? It's all his. He's in control. Now think about the, the huge implications of that. It, it's a worldview that, that frees us to glorify God by making use of all of his creation. And so, whether it is us singing or playing a flute or an organ or a piano or, or singing like our, our choir, all of those bring him glory. But also, as we preserve his creation, as we enjoy his creation, all of that, Brings glory to him because he is the the king and lord of the universe. It also affects even our occupations. And this was a principle of of the Reformation that what we do is not just a job, but they developed the idea of calling. So whether you are a minister of the gospel or a shoemaker, both are callings from God. And both bring God glory. You See how freeing that is? The doctrine of vocation and calling. Calvin's recognition of God's sovereignty also meant that God's in control of the present. He is able to use all events and people for his own purposes. Calvin reminds us this. Examples of things uh, many think of as chance occurrences are just so many proofs of heavenly providence. Especially of fatherly kindness. And hence ground for rejoicing is given to the godly. So He would say the the world speaks of chance and bad luck. God's people should rejoice at his sovereignty because that's what it is. Chance is not a thing in the biblical worldview. Further, his sovereignty presses us to understand that it, it is always a God who is sovereign in salvation. His grace is sovereign grace. To, to put it in, in, in three words, God saves sinners. Sinners don't save sinners. God is the sovereign one who saves sinners. And then some, someone's gonna say, well, I, I, I don't like that. You know, that... If God is sovereign, then he's not fair because not everyone is saved. A couple things to keep in mind. One is, uh, we, don't, we don't really want fair. You know, if you watched football yesterday, you saw some things that went against your team that were not fair. Fair. If you watch the World Series, if you're for Atlanta, you said, that's not fair. If you were for uh, Houston, you say, that's not fair. The same play, basically. Because we don't like it. And, and that's why we shouldn't talk about fairness because it's subjective. It's in one's eyes. So really, the question is, is it just? And we really don't want justice if we got justice all of us would be eternally condemned that's justice but that's not how God chose to work so the question is not well why not them why not that person and by the way we never know the end of the story only God does so you don't give up on anyone But the question is not, why not them? The question we should be asking, if any, is, why me? Why would you choose me to be your your child? Lots of questions about how all this fits with man's free will, the origin of suffering, the origins of evil. But Calvin, at this point, teaches us, humility he says how this was i repeat is a secret manifestly far too deep to be penetrated by the human mind and this gives me great comfort if his mind couldn't grasp it then i know mine can't okay he says far too deep to be penetrated by the human mind nor am i ashamed to confess our ignorance and far be it from any of the faithful to be ashamed to confess his ignorance of that which the Lord envelops in the blaze of his own inaccessible light. What he's saying is, look, at at some point, we have to come to the point of just saying, he is God, and I have understood as far as I can, and so I'm leaving the rest in him, and to be humble enough, as he says, and not to be ashamed when we get to that point. So, how do we handle it? Do we just walk around in a fog of mystery? Well, that then sends us to the only answer, and that is, he is sovereign, and that should drive us to worship. So, there he is. He's God, and I'm not. He gets it, and he has done that which is right. So we worship him. A third area was his emphasis on the true church. Uh, We, When we have the Lord's Supper read in 1 Corinthians 11, remember that in the Reformation, the Reformers had to deal with a question. How do you tell if a church is a true church? When they had to break away, the question is, well, Who who is a a true church and who is a, a false church? In one of Calvin's letters, he said, there are three things on which the safety of the church is founded. Doctrine, discipline, and the sacraments. And that became developed among the reformers as the marks of the church. The true preaching of the word. Here's how you tell if a church is a true church. The true preaching of the word the right administration of the sacraments. In other words, saying sacraments don't save you, but they are nonetheless important. And then the third is the proper exercise of discipline within the church, taking sin seriously. And in terms of his view of the church, uh, he said it, it ought to have an effect on the world He didn't see himself as a theologian, but as a lover of of God. And he emphasized a a personal piety, a a practical Christianity, not just theology for theology's sake, but what does that mean in in my life? He wrote the golden uh, booklet of the true Christian life, and it's all practical application, but also... In terms of the effect on society, he said that, that who God is should affect the way we treat one another. Listen to his heart of compassion. He's speaking of, of those that you would help. He said, "Christians certainly ought to display more than a sm- <clears throat> more than a smiling face." Sorry. I'm not choked up. I'm just choked. So, um. <clears throat> and now I made all of you thirsty too. I'm sorry. He said, more than a smiling face, a cheerful mood and polite language uh, when they practice charity. First of all, Christians ought to imagine themselves in the place of the person who needs their help. Isn't that a good first step? And they ought to sympathize with him as, as though they themselves were suffering. They ought to show real mercy and humaneness and offer their assistance as readily as if it were for themselves. That's the heart of compassion that he talks about. And that effect on the world was lived out in in Calvin's view of fourthly maintaining a strong impact on the world. You look in Matthew Five in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about being the salt and being the light of the world. He says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Calvin believed we were in the world not just to wait till we get to heaven, but to have an impact on the world that God put us in. That was his view. If Christ is the only head, he demands holiness. Calvin defined true royalty this way. True royalty is in a king that acknowledges himself as the minister of God. So true royalty is in the humility of a king that says, God is my God. So how was that lived out with With Calvin in terms of having uh, an impact on the world. Well, Calvin was going through Geneva, Switzerland, and he was pressed into service by his friend Farrell to help reform Geneva, and he did. And in so doing, he didn't just form a a new state, but a, a Presbyterian and reformed Church grew out of it, but it became a city that was governed by God's laws. Such a rarity. Here's what John Knox said about Geneva. He said, Geneva seemeth to me to be the wonderful miracle of the whole world. So many from all countries come thither. I think that means there, okay? as it were, into a sanctuary, not to gather riches, but to live in poverty. Is it not wonderful that Spaniards, Italians, Scots, Englishmen, Frenchmen, Germans, disagreeing in manners, speech, and apparel, sheep and wolves, bulls and bears, being coupled with the only yoke of Christ, should live so lovingly and friendly, and that monks, laymen, and nuns, disagreeing both in life and sect, should dwell together like a spiritual and Christian congregation. That was Geneva for a time. It didn't last forever, but there was a huge impact upon that city. So, as we read again, In Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That was also the way he died. Sometimes you can tell a lot about a person by how they do depart from this world. He struggled most of his life with extremely poor health. But at the end of his life, he wrote this prayer. Almighty God and Father, grant unto us, because we have to go through much strife on this earth, the strength of thy Holy Spirit, in order that we may courageously go through the fire and through the water and that we may put ourselves so under thy rule that we may go to meet death in full confidence of your assistance and without fear. And then he said, Grant us also that we may bear all hatred and enmity of mankind, Until we have gained the last victory, that we may at last come to that blessed rest, which your only begotten Son has acquired for us through his blood. Amen. On the day he died, it was written, with the setting sun, the brightest light that was in the world for the guidance of God's church was taken back to heaven. And at his death, his body was followed to burial by almost the whole city. And as I said, at his request, no stone marked his place of burial. So how do we, how do we think about, about this? Well, we should not ever worship a man. Not ever but thank God for giving him to the church. Take comfort in the the doctrines that God used John Calvin to clarify. And where he was godly, we should follow his example. But at every point, focus on Christ alone as he did. John Calvin's seal, and you can find that in your worship guide. A picture of one version of that uh, at the end of the outline. It was a flaming heart on the extended hand, and he he had his own personal Latin motto. I'm not going to try to read the Latin because I, well, I don't read Latin. That's why. But here's what it meant. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. That was his motto. But what a great motto for any of us. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for all of those that have gone before us. Thank you for Luther, for Calvin, for all of those who sacrificed so much. And may we, when we think of them, give you all the glory, not them. They didn't want it. They wanted Christ to be glorified. Help us to do that in our life as we offer our hearts To you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely, in Jesus' name, amen.